Hello and welcome to Health Ads Going Viral. I am Dr. David Lim. It is Thursday, the 30th of November. In this COVID update, Professor Adrian Esterman will provide you with all the facts about this new COVID wave and especially the dire situation in aged care homes. He will also explain the new XBB 1.5 monovalin vaccine, what we should be doing with regard to boosters and antivirals, as well as providing an update on the new research on long COVID. The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest on COVID-19, with leading voices from across Australia providing medical professionals with up-to-date information from reliable sources. Here's today's episode. Hello everyone and welcome to this COVID-19 update. Um, formally, I have uh, no conflicts of interest and uh, today I'm going to be covering where we are. As you're all aware, we're in the middle of a, a current wave of COVID-19 and at the same time, it's becoming incredibly difficult to obtain COVID-19 statistics. Um, I'll be talking about the latest vaccine news, the updated XBB.1.5 vaccines. I'll be looking at the very latest study on antivirals that's just been published. And finally, I'm just going to quickly look at the NICE, that's the uh, UK um, organisation's um, long COVID guidelines, uh, which should be worth reading. Now I'm going to start off with the state of Australia's COVID statistics and as you can probably gather by the um, photo there, it's a dog's breakfast. And why is it a dog's breakfast? It's because every state and territory are doing things differently now. Uh, many of the states and territories actually pass you on to the Department of Health and Aged Care, that's DHAC's uh, website. So they don't actually produce statistics themselves, they say please go to the Commonwealth Department's website. Those that do produce statistics, some do it weekly, some fortnightly, some only give case numbers, some only give hospital presentation numbers, and it's almost impossible to compile national statistics, which I think is a bit of a disgrace. If you do go onto DHAC's website, this is what you see, which looks fair enough. It says that they provide data on vaccines and cases and deaths, which they do. And if you come along to the uh, first page of that, you see that they do actually have all of those things down there. The trouble is when you press on them. So if, for example, you press on the uh, case notifications, you think you'd end up with case notifications. What you get? A different website which covers all 70-odd uh, notifiable diseases, and it's very, very difficult to actually extract the COVID-19 data from that. If you stay on DHAC's website, Here's the sort of thing they present. This is uh, COVID-19 deaths Australia. There are no numbers given, just a graph and no breakdown by state. In other words, it's pretty useless. What we do have though is a couple of states and territories do actually provide weekly data. So Western Australia is a good example and South Australia as well where I come from. In South Australia, they give quite good weekly data with one exception, deaths. They only provide death data monthly. So let's actually look at some South Australian data and see what's happening. And here are weekly case numbers, and we've had a pretty good run of case numbers right from the very beginning of the pandemic, so well done SA Health. And what we're seeing now is there has been quite a big peak, but last week numbers did uh, uh, drop off a bit. It could be a sign that perhaps we're over the peak, but I think it's a little bit too early to tell yet. And of course, the actual numbers you see are grossly underrepresented because so few people are testing. So if we look at hospital numbers, again, we see this massive rise in case, what's well, that massive rise, it's a rise in case numbers. SA Health can manage quite well unless case, uh, hospital numbers get above 200. 
and you can see that we hit that in June, but this was certainly not as high as that. Uh, again, uh, in the last week, case, uh, hospital numbers dropped off slightly, but again, I think it's too early to say that we're over the, heat, over the peak. Um, this is the percentage of all diagnosed cases, and that's the PCR diagnosis, uh, who get hospitalised. Now, at the beginning of the year, it was about 1.8%, uh, and it went as high as 7%, and it's now at about uh, 3%. And here's the point, the actual severity of the disease hasn't changed much. Uh, all of these Omicron subvariants have roughly the same level of disease severity. So why are we seeing these percentage hospitalised keep going up? I think it's this grossly um, underascertainment of case numbers, so that the actual case numbers are usually three or four times, if not more, than the actual diagnosed case numbers. Now, I'm sure I've shown you this before, and I'm sure you've all seen it before, the effective reproduction number. So it's a number that, if it's greater than one, it means the epidemic's going up. If it's equal to one, then the epidemic is basically level. And if it's less than one, it means the epidemic's dying out. So here's the data for South Australia. And we can see that for the last uh, two or three weeks, in fact, for the last month, it's been going up, and it actually got reasonably high at 1.2. It's now coming down again. Again, another sign that we might be over the hump, but we have to wait for another week or two to confirm that. And this is probably the most worrying thing, and this is the percentage of PCR tests that are positive. So a month ago, um, or two months ago, I should say, it was 15%, which is still very high. And now for the last week or two, it's been above 30%. And in fact, for some reason, they didn't publish last week's numbers, which makes you wonder why. But certainly, um, having 35% of all PCR tests positive is a very worrying sign. Now, as I said, we couldn't get SA weekly deaths because they don't provide it. They only give monthly. But we do have Western Australia weekly deaths. And as you can see, they are a relatively low level at the moment. Um, what I haven't shown here is Western Australia wastewater surveillance data, which is very good. And what that shows is a very, very big increase in, in um, detection of, of COVID-19, or at least SARS-CoV-2 virus, over the last three or four weeks. So they're going through quite a large uh, wave at the moment. And as I imagine most of Australia is, for that matter. Do we have any Australian data? Well, as I pointed out, case numbers are pretty difficult to get. Hospitalizations are pretty difficult to get. We do have some things. So for example, let me start off with what's floating around at the moment. So what we see is that the major subvariants going around Australia at the moment are HK.3 and HV.1. If you're not sure what they are, they are actually descendants of the EG.5.1, which is the Eris subvariant. And they're basically a supercharged Eris because they've got this double flip mutation that makes them much more transmissible. So either we've got these, these descendants of Eris or Eris itself. So Eris is absolutely dominating the Australian scene at the moment. Implications? Not a lot because Eris is just another subvariant with similar severity to all the other subvariants of Omicron. This is probably the most worrying graph I'm going to show you. We now have 334 active outbreaks in aged care homes in Australia. That's enormous. It's almost as high as what we saw in the sort of May-June wave. And again, another worrying sign that tells us we are in the middle of quite a large wave of cases. Importantly, only 45% of aged care residents are up to date with their booster shots, which I think is a bit of a disgrace. Another flag is the uh, prescriptions for uh, anti, um, uh, oral antivirals. Uh, here we see that they're going up. Again, pointing to either at the peak or certainly in the middle of, of uh, another big wave in Australia. Again, not as high as uh, uh, 
May-June uh, wave, but certainly going up. I'd like to talk a little bit now about vaccines and where we are. This is the state of play in terms of vaccination. And again, this is quite a worrying chart. It shows that if you look at the elderly, 75 plus, just over 25% are up to date with their booster shot. And 65 to 74, another at-risk group, only 20%. Now, the 1864s aren't too much of a worry because it's not recommended they actually get a vaccine or a booster shot. But the other two groups, I would like to see that at least 50%. I think the current standard of 20 and 25% again is a bit of a disgrace and we should be doing something about it. Otagi have recently updated who can uh, uh, or who is recommended to get their uh, most recent booster shot. I'll take you down to that bottom part of the flow chart which is probably the most important one. So this is looking at some um, individuals without risk factors and what they say is that those who are 75 years or older should have an additional dose this year. In other words a second booster shot uh, and of course we now have the new XBB.1.5 coming through. 65 to 74, it says an additional dose should be considered. I actually personally think that it should be recommended, but that's their decision. And finally, here's the critical thing. 18 to 64 years, they say an additional dose is not recommended. Now what does that mean? This has got myself and many people who contact me and GPs and friends of mine who are specialists totally foxed. Does it mean that people in that age group without underlying risk factors cannot have a vaccine? Cannot get another booster shot? Or does it simply mean it's not recommended? I have lots of people contacting me saying they've been to a pharmacist and the pharmacist has refused to give it to them because it's not recommended. Other people have been to a pharmacist and they have given it to them. My, under my understanding of, of what it all means is that if I go to see my GP and say, look, I would like to get an additional booster shot for these reasons, the GP has got that ability to perhaps recommend that I get one. But it's totally unclear. It's got everyone confused. And um, good luck to anyone who's looking for another vaccine who doesn't fit into one of these categories. Uh, as you, I'm sure you're aware, because you'll be getting them shortly, we have the new monovalent vaccines based on XBB.1.5 uh, recombinant subvariant. Um, here's the latest news. So, as you know, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines will be available on 11th of December, uh, but Novavax uh, is actually going to be available in January or February. So, Novavax has submitted all of their preclinical data uh, to um, the TGA. Uh, and the TGA say it takes 45 days approximately for them to go through the approval process. And that means that sometime in January or perhaps early February, we should have Novavax available, which should be a good thing. Here are the, um, uh, the, the preclinical data that um, Pfizer submitted to the TGA. And importantly, you can see that this is neutralizing antibodies. And you can see that it works extremely well against all of the latest circulating subvariants, including the XBB.1.5 itself, which is called Kraken, the EG.5.1 I talked about called Eris, and importantly, BA.2.A6 Parola. And the reason why that is so important is that Parola has got over 30 mutations away from XBB.1.5. We wouldn't expect it to work as effectively against uh, Parola, but in fact it does, which is very pleasing and reassuring. Uh, here are the similar data for Moderna. Um, uh, this is actually based on uh, a small number of uh, adults, uh, human adults, so this is clinical data. 
And again, we see a, a very good um, neutralizing antibody response against BA.2.86, EG.5.1, FL.5.1, um, which is one that's uh, going quite well in the United States. I think it's called FOMAX. And finally, here's the data that's been presented to TGA for um, Novavax. And again, we see very, very good neutralizing antibodies against um, FL.1.5.1, EG.5.1, etc. They haven't actually tried it against BA.2.8.6, but there's no reason I can think of why it wouldn't work against that as well. So for all three um, vaccines, we have very, very good um, uh, uh, preclinical and clinical data, which seems to show that they work quite well against these new subvariants. Now, I'm sure you're all familiar with the mRNA-based vaccines, but Novavax is a little bit of a mystery because it was so late in coming to Australia. Um, so how it actually uh, gets created is that, as you see, researchers get genes that create the spike protein, and they put these genes into a, 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 a virus called Bacillus which actually only um, infects insects. Um, they actually then infect moth cells with this virus, which replicate. And so the moth cells create the spike proteins and the researchers then gather them up and use them to actually get the vaccine. On top of that, they actually have a, a quite a good uh, adjuvant called Matrix M. And it's based on saponin from the soap bark tree. And it works so well that it's actually going to be tried on several other types of vaccine as well. Um, so they have this double whammy of the um, moth-based um, spike protein and this adjuvant. Um, efficacy is almost identical to the mRNA-based vaccines um, and it has been noted that Novavax might have fewer side effects and a lot of people don't trust the mRNA-based vaccines and are hanging out for the Novavax so hopefully it will encourage more people to get vaccinated. Here's uh, its um, presentation and, and storage so it comes in multi-dose vials 19 per carton, 10 doses, uh, 10 doses uh, per vial and um, they have put in authorization to get a single dose one, so we'll have to see how that comes out. Uh, it can be kept in a normal refrigerator, a nine month shelf life. So in fact, much, much easier to transport and um, look after than the mRNA based vaccines that require a freezer. Now I'd like to look at um, antivirals. There's been a lot of controversy over monupiravir. Um, first of all, there was that um, panoramic trial, which basically showed it didn't work. Then there was all this controversy over whether it can actually induce um, mutations itself. Um, but here's a, a study that's only just been published. And as you can see, it was published October the 3rd uh, this year, so a month or so ago. And it's coming out in the December issue of Lancet um, Western Pacific. Importantly, it's an Australian study. Uh, it was done in Victoria and it's in people aged 70 years and over and as you'll see, who are almost all well vaccinated. In other words, it's a typical population of who we give antivirals to in Australia. So it was a, a data linkage study where they linked up um, their case uh, numbers or case database with vaccination records, inpatient records, death records, and of course, um, PBS oral antiviral prescription data. And they actually had two outcomes which they analyzed separately. Uh, the first was um, mortality due to any cause within 35 days and the other one was in associated hospitalisation uh, for any cause within 35 days. And as I said, they analysed them totally separately using different databases. 
So here's the mortality data. And the first thing is look at the numbers. We have a very large number of people in the trial. Average age is close to 80, uh, half female. Four doses of vaccine, you're getting between 60 and 80%, uh, showing how well vaccinated this group are. Now look at the death data. 3.4% died in the no, no uh, oral antiviral group, 1.7 or halving in the molnupiravir group, and 0.6 in the Paxlovid group. And it really tells us what we know already, and that is that Paxlovid works extremely well uh, against death, um, but as we know, Paxlovid is a bit tricky in terms of drug-drug um, interactions and in terms of people not having it because they've got renal impairment, for example. Molnupiravir also works, not as well as Paxlovid, but still halves the death rate. Um, let's now look at the hospitalization results. Again, very large sample sizes, ages going between 70 and 80, highly vaccinated group. As I said, this was using different database. And if you look at percentage hospitalized, we've got 1.7% for those not receiving an oral antiviral, 1.2 for molnupiravir, and one for Paxlovid. So clearly Paxlovid works extremely well, almost halving hospitalization rate. Monupiravir, not as well as Paxlovid, but still doing well. And in all cases, these were statistically significant findings. So the message here is, yes, Paxlovid works the best that we have, but Monupiravir is still effective and should be considered if Paxlovid cannot be given. Finally, the paper talks about timing of treatment and cases treated within one day had a 61% reduction in odds of death compared to 33% if it was delayed four or more days. So this tells us what we really already know. The sooner you get the uh, antiviral into someone, the better it works. And of course, this is important for access to a GP, uh, access to uh, getting a prescription, etc. Uh, long COVID. So it's still a bit of a, a mystery. We know it impacts on huge uh, numbers of different parts of the body, that it waxes and wanes, so it's quite difficult to, to treat in the sense that these symptoms come and go. Um, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, NICE in the UK, have now published guidelines for managing long COVID. Um, they're very thorough. Um, the actual recommendations they give are fairly obvious in the sense that that's what you probably do anyway. But what the NICE um, guidelines do is they provide all of the evidence backing those recommendations. And I think this is a document that's certainly worth a read. Here's the first thing they say. Um, how do you manage patients? Well, you explain to them about the ongoing symptoms. Um, you try to show them how they can self-manage their condition. And basically, you explain to them what to do next. Who should they contact if they're still worried? Um, and for example, in Adelaide now, we have, I think it's three long COVID clinics and you'll be referring them on to them. Here's uh, one of the things I come up with, and they say that if you are vaccinated before you get infected, it does reduce the chance of long COVID. However, they say that if you're vaccinated after you've been infected, then there's not enough evidence to make that decision. But here's the key message, please get vaccinated. It does reduce your chance of long COVID. These are the common symptoms they say uh, form part of long COVID. And as you can see, they cover just about every part of the body. The one they don't have, which um, has got many reports now, is um, a reproductive system. So there's reports of um, erectile dysfunction, um, 
issues with menopause, etc. So I'm not sure why they haven't got that in there, but certainly all of these are now well proven. And as I said, the NICE guidelines give the background and evidence behind each of these. And because it's a, such a mishmash of conditions, they do recommend that any patient who comes along who potentially has long COVID should be um, approached using a, a multi-D um, approach, including rehab, uh, physical, psychological, psychiatric, etc. Uh, clearly, these are quite difficult patients to handle. I mean, if you're brave or willing, you can handle them yourself. But I think most of them would require some sort of multidisciplinary um, uh, consultations to try and work out uh, how, how to give them some relief from their symptoms. And finally, any good news? Yes, there is good news. So just a few days ago, all of the uh, federal uh, and um, state uh, territory health ministers signed off on our new Australian CDC. It's been a long time in coming. Uh, it's been, been being planned for over a year now. Um, I went to the original consultation on it. Um, importantly, they have a statement uh, uh, which they make at the bottom, which says working together to improve the timely access and sharing of consistent data, information and advice nationally. And that's exactly what we need for COVID-19 and I can't wait for the CDC to be established. Thank you very much. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcasts where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.